In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Dr. Mallory Dwinal palish is our guest this week on Money Tales. Mallory's thinking about the role of money in her life drastically changed when her dad unexpectedly died months after he turned 60. Mallory describes him as someone who talked about all the things he was going to do, hike mountains, go on trips, pursue other adventures, but he and Mallory's mom didn't have gobs of money piled up somewhere they weren't spending. Her parents were constantly investing and reinvesting, trying to take care of their family and provide for the future. Sadly, Mallory's dad died without ever doing many of the things he dreamed of. From then on, Mallory has been focused on budgeting experiences so she doesn't look back with a deep sense of regret. Today, Mallory is Chancellor of Reach University and co-founder and CEO of Craft Education System. She has dedicated her life's work to building equity-focused, innovative educational models. Mallory co-founded Reach's apprenticeship-based university that has already helped hundreds of school districts across the country grow their own local, diverse, and qualified teachers. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Mallory hits on in this conversation with us. First, how she taught herself that it's okay to spend money on the things you like and want. Second, her perspective that the way to have a good life is to make sure you don't have runaway expenses. And third, how student loan debt can be crushing, and there are some creative ways to avoid it. We hope you share this episode with a friend, and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now, onto our conversation with Mallory Dwinal Palish. Hello, Money Tales listeners. We're excited for another episode today. Speak with a very special guest. Before we get there, Sandy, I wanted to share with you. I just got back from the gas station. And part of why I want to talk about it is I was there with my mom, who's visiting this week, helping us celebrate my eldest daughter's birthday. It was such a special week. We drove down to drop our kids off. Luckily, we noticed the gas tank was basically empty. (laughs) So before I drove her to the airport, we went to the gas station where the prices are shockingly high. And I just was feeling a little bit guilty. Because my mom and my dad, they used to drive like a number of miles away to get the lowest gas. It just became a game. And I've still got that in me, but I have a work day. We got things to do. So there had to be this balance between me searching out the lowest price, which there is one almost 50 cents less a gallon. It's just, it's farther away. You have to wait in line. 
So I guiltily did not have a money conversation with my mom about this other option. The closer one, the more expensive? Did you just go for convenience? Convenience. We had to. It was a time value of money, I guess, decision. But it was one of those, I was feeling guilty getting on money tails, not having this money conversation with my mom. I just, I felt like it wouldn't have been a conversation. It might have been a little bit of a lecture. (laughs) Oh, maybe it was intentional then, subconsciously. (laughs) I think it was. I think it was. She didn't say anything. She wasn't paying attention. Uh, She saw it and we're pretty much seeing this in most of the gas stations. So it wasn't necessarily, this one was higher. We were both in shock as the final bill came in. Anyway... On to a great money conversation with our guest today, Dr. Mallory Dwinal-Palish. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. Hi there. Great to see you both. Great to see you. Mallory, would you please introduce yourself for our listeners and provide two to three pivotal moments that really impacted who you are today? Absolutely. So let's see, I'll introduce myself very briefly, since I guess those two to three moments will do a lot better job of telling more about who I am. My name is Mallory Dwinal-Palish. I am the Chancellor of Reach University, which is an apprenticeship-based university for teachers. And then I am also the CEO of the Craft Education System, a data layer that manages apprenticeship degree reporting. A couple of moments from my lifetime that have been pivotal and how I think about the world all kind of lead me back to the job I have today. I think about it in three chapters. I think the first would be my time in K-12. My second would be my time in higher ed. And then the third would be my life in the working world. So starting with K-12, K-12 was a time for me that felt really easy and joyful and probably should not have had it not been for the sacrifices of many other people. Right as I was going into preschool, my parents lost everything in the Mississippi River floods and were bankrupted and homeless and had to completely rebuild. And as a part of that, we ended up moving around a lot when I was a kid. And this was pre-Common Core. So you'd move to a new state and there were new standards and a completely new order of operations. Fifth grade was the first time I finished a school year at the same place that I started it. And so with all of that moving around, there should have been lots of opportunities for me to get behind. But I think both between my parents' sacrifice and having these incredible teachers who felt like education was going to be the ticket to a better life for any of their kids and for all of their students, had really incredible educators in the public school system work really hard to catch me up and to make sure that I was always on track or ahead of track. And so that was sort of where my first thinking about what it would mean to live a good life and what mattered to me really came in was reflecting on how much was given to me in that K-12 space. I'd say the second chapter of life came with higher ed, where I got into higher ed at each stage, I really struggled. You know, my first semester at college and then eventually my first semester of graduate school. And a lot of it was attributed to I had come from a system where there's a lot of focus on memorization, a lot of focus on rote repetition. At the end of college, I'd been an economics major and that actually played pretty well in the econ degree actually taught me very little about how to manage my own money, but a story for a little later on, I guess. When I got to my PhD program, I won a Rhodes Scholarship that paid for me to do my PhD at Oxford. And when I got there, I really struggled. This idea of going from sort of being a good student means being good at regurgitating and getting the same answer as your teaching assistant or your professor to actually having to be a novel contributor and a thinker 
realized that there were all of these higher order skills that had been sort of implicitly and piecemeal taught to me over the years, but never structurally and systematically introduced. And that catalyzed for me this idea of it's not just enough to give kids a good education, but a good education has to be something that assumes they're going to have to go out and work in the messy open world where they can't just copy and paste and repeat what they've been told. They're going to have to learn how to think for themselves and to create and to hold that. And then the third and final chapter, I would say, has been my working life. So with the exception of a few years of teaching in the classroom, my entire working life has been entrepreneurship in education. So first starting and running a charter school, and then after that, starting and running this university and this data company. The layering into that, that progression from just needing solid fundamentals in K-12 having to learn how to deal with critical thinking and open-ended problem solving in higher ed. The third chapter of my development, I think, has really been focused on managing the risk and the uncertainty. There's no such thing as waking up and feeling like, I got an A today and I can go home and everything's done and it's all complete. But instead, moving through the world, not knowing if things are going to be okay for weeks and months and sometimes years at a time. And how do you go out there and continue to give your best, not really sure what it's going to mean for your personal or financial future on any given day. Wow. I love the orientation and the chapters really helps even for us to segment and dive into your life. But I I really appreciate how you think about it. Let's go back to chapter one. We like to understand a little bit further the conversations that our guests and for you, what were you having around money in your home? You talked about your parents, their sacrifices, what they went through. I mean, I can't even imagine losing everything, being homeless, all this moving that you experienced. How were you all talking about money or them demonstrating aspects of money and relationships with money? The amazing thing about my parents is that was only the first of the second time that they lost everything. As I was a freshman in high school, our family's home burned down. And it was Jeez. at a time when my dad had been away because he'd had a major back surgery and so wasn't necessarily in his normal workflow or anything like that. And so I think for my parents, there was this really strong emphasis that I still see. You know, my mom still runs their company today. And this emphasis on cash flows and on living sort of day to day, making sure things work. What that always meant was not necessarily having trust in complicated instruments or tools. And not because they weren't smart, but because they knew like liquidity was going to be king. They had this assumption of, no, we know exactly how those tools work. My mom worked briefly for Merrill Lynch and had this very clear understanding of how these tools work. But this idea of those are a luxury for when you have fungible expenses, when you have a lot of disposable income, which is not something that my parents assumed would be the case growing up. So most of my childhood was watching them and they were very explicit in teaching these lessons around you only buy used cars. Your cost per mile on your car should be below five cents by the time you add in all of the expenses for maintenance and everything else. And it was just very much focused on this idea of the way you have a good life is by making sure that you don't have runaway expenses because you can never assume that the top line will always be good. All you can do is control what comes out of it on your way to the bottom line. And that was always their focus. So Mallory, with that being their focus, what was it like for you growing up with all of this 
stress, it sounds like around money, but it sounds like your parents, the way you're describing it, were pretty calm, cool, and collected as they were talking to you and your siblings. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was not low stress for them. I'm sure it was very high stress, but for them, it was this idea. And for what it felt like for me growing up was very much that story of the grasshopper and the ant. This idea that winter will come and it is your job to make sure that when it comes, you have money saved, that you have things stored up. And so financial independence was always really important to my parents for us. Like I got a credit card when I was 15 and it was really important that every month we would sit down and look at... I had to have a receipt for every single transaction and we'd actually do the ledger and going through and accounting. And I don't do that anymore, but it took me until I was in my late 20s to give up this idea that I don't need to have a file with receipts clipped to the back of every credit card statement and every checkbook balance ledger from every single month. But that was how it was. It was always this thing of you have to have your house in order because the world is hard and it can be a hard place to navigate without that. I love that as a skill building exercise. I'm curious when you were going through the receipts in the credit card statement with your parents every month, were you needing to justify certain purchases or was it really just an accounting transaction that you guys were having? We had been raised by parents who were so thoughtful in how they talked about money every step of the way about what you do and don't spend money on and not wanting to let them down. I think very rarely was there ever a need to justify expenses because I felt it along the way. I don't want to go spend money on this. I don't want to go do this. And so it was more of just this conversation and this accounting of, you know, I had a job when I was in high school of how much money came in. Do you notice that your entire shift was required to fill up your 1986 used Honda Accords gas tank? What does that mean? What does that tell you? And it was always used as this instruction for life can be really expensive, even when you're not living lavishly. I do think it created this over-conservatism around fearing. Like I didn't ever have to spend time justifying how I spent money, but in ways where now I think that might've been its own problem. Maybe there should have been more conversation about it's okay to spend money on things that you like and that you want. How'd you get comfortable with that, Mallory? It's a really hard, sad lesson, honestly, which is that for my dad, he never got to go to college. And so us getting an education was sort of always his justification for all of the self-denial for years, right? I won't do these things. And then my kids will go to school. And then after that, then I will get my chapter. And when I was graduating business school, which was my last, I did my PhD first, and then I went to business school. Like two weeks after I finished business school, about a month after my youngest sister finished college, my dad just died unexpectedly at 60 years old, just months after his 60th birthday. And I think it was this really sad thing of realizing there had been so many years that he'd talked about all of the things he was going to do, how someday he was going to hike this mountain or going to go on this trip. And he never did any of those things. You know, it's hard because on the one hand, my parents had to make a lot from a little. My dad died at a time where my parents ran a construction company together and died coming out of sort of the aftershocks of the 2009 financial crisis, which hit the construction market really hard. So it's not as if they had just globs of money piled up somewhere that they weren't spending and constantly investing and reinvesting and trying to take care and provide for the future ultimately still just meant that my dad died without ever having gotten to do most of the things he said he wanted to do in life. And so 
observing that has had an impact on you. Yeah. Bring that to life for us. What were you noticing you were doing differently after learning that lesson? I think it's a lot more of taking vacations, spending money on things that might seem frivolous. The idea that you would ever go get a cup of coffee from Starbucks kind of thing when you're with my parents was unthinkable. Not because they couldn't afford it, but just like, that's how you never build wealth. What a waste. That's a waste. Exactly. And you know, our vacations as family, we're almost always, we're going to go camping because that's what we can afford. And you don't need to go spend $20,000 on a big fancy vacation. And all of that is true. And I am so grateful to have been raised with that ability to live frugally and to feel comfortable inside of it. And what I've noticed is a willingness to spend more on, yeah, I'm going to have a $100 bottle of wine when I go out to dinner tonight, or I'm going to go on vacations. My husband and I have kind of made a rule of like at least two vacations a year and setting those minimums. I think we talk a lot about maximums you need to set in life of you should never be spending more than this amount. But since my dad's passing, I think we've thought a lot more about the minimums of if you're not going on at least this many vacations and you're not spending at least this amount of money on things that matter to you, are you going to look back feeling a deep sense of regret later? So values-based budgeting is what I'm hearing, which is beautiful. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't say we're there yet, especially my husband is a career changer. So he just went through the eight-year slog of medical school plus residency. Wow. We're sort of readjusting to life on the other side of not being in a training program and actually getting compensated. And that helps a lot. I go back to thinking about my parents' fundamentals of how much money are you bringing in and then how much money do you spend? It's a lot easier to live a comfortable life when you make a lot. There's a ton of privilege there. And my husband and I are both each now making more money than I think we'd ever imagined. And so it is a privileged position to do that values-based budgeting in the sense of there are things that matter to me. I want to look back on my life and say that I traveled, I tried good food, I you know spent time with friends on vacation. And getting in the habit of spending that is a luxury and it's a privilege, but it's been really important, I think, for our lives. Hey, Mallory, you talked in your introduction about your lifelong focus on education and what it's meant and done for you. And I'm curious about pursuing entrepreneurial efforts in the field of education. Tell us about that, because oftentimes I think when people hear about educators and that system, the financial aspects seem kept in an opposite way of what you were just talking about, of the minimums you were setting for some of your spending and the way you're living your lifestyle. How are you approaching that as an entrepreneur? As much as I would sit here and just say that again, that I wish for my parents they'd spent more money when I was growing up, the fundamentals taught there about spending less money actually opened up the opportunity for entrepreneurship for me. So between you know my parents plus scholarships and aid helping with undergraduate. And then I won some really generous scholarships that paid for all of my graduate school. And then what was left of living expenses, I was able to cover through. You know, When I was in Oxford, I worked as a bartender. When I was at Harvard, I lived in the freshman dorms and got free room and board by being sort of a proctor to the freshman students. And so between those combinations of things, it was pretty lean, right? When I was in my PhD program, there were like eight of us living in a house that I don't even know if it's still standing <laughs> anymore. And was living off of a lot of like rice and potatoes. But it did mean that I graduated from school with no student loan. Fantastic. And that is a huge opportunity. And I think about how much that made possible. I was coming into the world as an entrepreneur at 28 years old. By the time I finished 
all of the grad school and everything else. And I had no student loan debt. I didn't have any kids I had to take care of. I was just living run rate. And I wasn't necessarily saving any money, but I felt convicted of, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and maybe I wasn't saving what I wanted, but this was my chance to take that swing. When I didn't have kids, I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have anything else. It's been really hard. The hard thing about entrepreneurship is you miss a target at work and suddenly you can't pay your rent at home. There is that bleeding between those worlds. And that was really painful. But being in a situation where what it meant to make ends meet was much more manageable than if I had $2,000 monthly student loan payment or kids to take care of, et cetera. You talked about education in the States, a lot of focus on memorization. Then you go over to Oxford, you're required to really process and apply, not just memorize. And then you alluded to maybe some missed opportunities in our education system around money. I'm curious through your education, whether it's just US and the Oxford style or just in general, where do you think you learn the most around money? And what can we do as a society to infuse our overall learning to incorporate financial and money learning? You know, I think what's hardest for me is where I learned the most about money was never in school, right? It was outside of school, which is especially challenging when you consider the fact that I was an econ and finance major and then got my MBA. It's interesting. A friend of mine from business school has actually started a personal finance startup of which I'm a customer. And the reason she started it that I thought was so important, I'll get back to your question of, so where should we be teaching it? Is she was saying like, I would see all of these people who seemed so confident with money. And when it came to dealing with companies' wealth, they were. They had gone and learned all about financial instruments and how to do all of these other things. But when it came to their own money, for as much as they might have a general sense of, I should be saving a lot, I should be doing these things, had no idea what sort of tax-privileged accounts they should be looking at, what other sorts of financial instruments they should be going after, if they had the right structure in their portfolio, if they were saving enough or not. And that resonated with me as so true. We got all the way through. And for as much confidence as I felt like I had in understanding how money works in a macro sense, had nothing other than just a vague sense of anxiety about money on a personal sense. I didn't really have a strategy, just I should be saving. I should be saving enough that I could someday retire. But what that meant, how much that meant, if I was doing it right, if I was making my money work the hardest, no idea. And so I think that I'm hesitant because on the one hand, I've seen schools implement financial literacy and it turns into classes where kids just sort of zone out as someone tries to teach them how to fill out a check. It doesn't actually teach them anything. So do schools need to teach kids how to deal with finances? I think so. Would I tomorrow, if I could, go pass legislation mandating it? Absolutely not. Because the gap between what people should do and a school actually knowing how to do that well, like I think is wide. And I really don't know how you do it other than get out there and where I learned the most was getting a credit card at 15 and having to pay it off and having to see what happened. And then what I learned the second most has probably been now as an adult who for the first time in her life has disposable income and feels like a fool every day of like, I don't know where to invest this or how to invest this, but I can go find people who do. I think it's critically important, but how people learn about that, I don't know how I feel about our school system's ability to teach it. It's interesting when you were sharing about your experience growing up with education, I was putting the financial education lens on it. 
And I think a lot of what is taught to your point is that memorization. It's the check writing, (laughs) save money, (laughs) make sure you're not spending as much as you're earning. But there's no teaching around the critical thought aspect of making money decisions. Yeah. There's always a trade-off when you're dealing with money. I think this trade-off, I think that's the exact issue. You know, even it's funny for as much as my parents stressed me getting an education growing up for my dad, it was always very much from this perspective of, I'm not sure that the degree is going to teach you anything, but you need the piece of paper. I saw what it was like to not have the piece of paper and it closes doors. You've got to keep your doors open. You've got to go get the paper. And I don't think that's true. I think I learned a lot in education, but it is interesting that I do think one of our weaknesses in education is we teach concepts in a vacuum. How do you write a check? How much should you be saving? But devoid of anything you said of what happens when that comes into competition with other things I care about. And I think that's one of the hardest things about how we educate kids is I spent so much time in school taking all of those little tests of like, what career should you have that were focused on? Like, do you like science or do you like you know <laughs> writing or whatever? But none of them ever asked me, like, how do you like to spend your days, right? Because maybe you'd love to be a surgeon, except for the fact that at hour 13, you don't get to be home with your family. You're still in the hospital. Does that matter to you? Maybe you'd love to be a financial analyst, except it means you're going to stare at a spreadsheet all day and you really need to have human contact. And I think those trade-offs, that's where values-based anything comes into play, right? It's not how much you like something in a vacuum. It's how much you like it when you have to choose it over something else. And I think we do a terrible job of encouraging students to actually think about those trade-offs strategically in school. We act as if those trade-offs don't exist and we sterilize them when we teach. That's a really good point. To leap off of this conversation around trade-offs, you mentioned before some trade-offs you and your husband have decided to make. And I'm curious, Mallory, how did you and your husband come to have these conversations What's talking about money like with your husband and has it evolved over the time you've been married? He and I went through much the same arc. He grew up in a family that was also working middle class. So mom was a school teacher, stepdad worked at a chemical plant. They were living in rural Kentucky and they were making ends meet. But with a family of five, there weren't big fancy vacations. And everything, the story was always pour more money into buying land. You need to always be saving more money, get land. The more farming land you have, the better off you are. But never fungible wealth that lets you live better today. Chase and I both grew up in this space of coming from a place where our families were constantly worried about money. There was constant talk about money, but not with a strategy for escaping orbit and getting to a place where you didn't worry. Constantly talking about money, but from a place of worry. We met, we were the same class for our road scholarship. And both had opportunities before us that were going to be life-changing, right? Chase also graduated. He had full-ride scholarships through undergraduate and then with graduate school. So we both graduated school debt-free and had this sense of the worry we watched our parents live with was just not a way to live. We didn't want to be in our 50s or 60s feeling like we'd missed out on the chance to go do things because we were constantly worried. So for both of us, it was this very privileged realization that we'd been given more than our parents had and wanting to think through what it would mean to use that where we'd look back and feel like we'd had a fulfilling life. So we had sort of the same genesis, the same challenge and goal. And it's just been this constant learning together in the 13 years we've been together now. Tell us, Mallory, you're in your chapter three. 
you're doing some amazing work at Reach University. You co-founded a business. Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and why you're doing it. So Reach University is the nation's first ever university to offer stackable apprenticeship-based teaching degrees. And what I mean by that is, you know, the way our program works and then to why and how we got there. But how it works fundamentally is we'll work with the school district that has teacher shortages and then take adults who are already working in their building, usually as a minimum wage classroom aide. And it's a person who the school leadership says, I know they'd be a great teacher. They're from here. They're committed. They've been here forever. I see how they work with kids every day. They could be great, but they don't have the bachelor's degree. They don't have the piece of paper and they don't have the training it represents. And turning their job into a true registered apprenticeship where at the end of year one, they get a 30 credit early childhood education certificate. At the end of year two, they get an associate's that then stacks into a bachelor's and then all the way up into a master's degree plus whatever credential they need. And along the way, 50% of all credit hours is the job they're getting paid to do. And all other tuition is paid for through federal apprenticeship funding and or Pell grants. And so the idea here being that people can not only not take on student loan debt, but get paid to earn their college degree and have a guaranteed job for them on the other side. And, you know, I think where that came from for me is twofold of one in general, I saw for me what a life-changing impact it is to be in a world where you don't have student loan debt. Student loan debt is crushing. It is trajectory changing. And I watch people who went to business school with me who had incredible educations and opportunities, but because they have $350,000 in student loan debt, they are living the same way as friends and family I know who are working hourly wages as baristas and they're living paycheck to paycheck and don't get to have financial freedom because they always have to worry about that payment coming due next month. So I think the first thing it started off for me was how do we take student loan debt out of the equation? Get you the degree that gets you that job in the place where you already live. And we focus in rural communities where being a teacher tends to be one of the highest paying jobs in that region. But then the second piece is, you know, I think that these apprenticeship degrees could eventually work in any industry, nursing, IT, advanced manufacturing. For me, it mattered starting with K-12 because that was the space that gave me opportunities. That was the space that let me have opportunities that my parents did not have and that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Mallory, it sounds like you're being very thoughtful about the work you're doing and creating true economic opportunities for other people out there in the world. Well, thank you. That's our hope. It's definitely a work in progress, but it is exciting. We're seeing this year, the Department of Labor made teaching a permanently apprenticeable position and it opens up billions of dollars of funding. And our goal is exactly that, is to make sure that not just through Reach University, but through some of the collective impact work we want to do with other universities. Our goal is that teaching apprenticeships be available in every community in America so that if you want a traditional teaching degree, it's always available to you. But that anyone who wants to become a teacher, but for whom four years out of the workforce, four years of student loan debt is not a realistic opportunity, that anyone could still become a teacher through this apprenticeship pathway. Mallory, it's been a lot of fun talking to you about money. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? As mentioned at the beginning of this, realizing that I didn't have a strategy for money and that a friend of mine from business school has started her own startup that focuses on helping individuals really understand in layman's terms, what does it mean to work strategically with the values you have? I meet with her tomorrow. So that's my next money conversation. And I am so grateful that it is. Mallory, we're glad to hear that. 
you are so intentional about everything you do. It doesn't surprise any of us listening that this is your next conversation. This is what you're focusing on and really amazing work. I just think this idea of apprenticeship degrees for other industries and trades is so powerful. And I look forward to staying in touch and we all do and watching you um, help pioneer this. And thank you in the meantime for joining us on Money Tales. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.